is looking for partners that are remaking the world with him. Man, it'd be amazing to be drawn close in a family with him. And so what are the unreliable sources of life that we've been trusting in? To let God adjust our perspective. here at Campus House, and it's just really good to see you, and I get a real treat today, because uh, up here with me is my husband, Shane, and he's like my favorite person ever, so I love that I get to do this with him, uh, that we get to share together, and so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about John 4 today, so I'm actually going to pass it off to him to kick us off. So if you have your Bibles... Go ahead and start to turn to John chapter 4. It's fun to be here and uh, see your faces, even if they're masked this morning, and be with you. Have you guys ever um, looked at people or situations or looked around you and thought, if people would just change their perspective, maybe even think a little bit more like me in this situation, things would be so much better. Actually, they would be happy, I would be happy. God would be happy, our neighbors would be happy, and things would be in a much better place. Um, my kids have been um, letting us know this during quarantine. Uh, they've been telling us that our family would be so much better off if we had a dog. We would probably behave better. The, the, just the sun would shine on our house is basically the picture they gave. They did a nice little PowerPoint. Thank you, Mary, uh, for encouraging them to do that. Uh, to tell us all the points of why we should have a dog and the way that it would enrich our family life together and that you might think that picking up dog waste is gross, but it would really be a wonderful and good situation for all of us. So they've been trying to help change our perspective in regards to that. Um, as a basketball coach way back in the day, actually as a basketball player even before that, I always thought that a good basketball practice was one where we ran very little and scrimmaged a whole lot, all right? And I, we would always, as players, try to convince our coaches that that was a good practice and things would be well and we would improve much if that was the case. Our coaches had a different perspective and they would always say that actually if you run more than you really want to, if we press you to run farther and faster than you want to, that's when things are going to go better. And when we break down the plays and don't scrimmage a whole lot, but it becomes second nature, that's actually, and so they would, we would try to convince each other. Anybody ever been there? trying to convince each other of perspective. My wife thinks that the Colts are the Lord's team, and I've shown her biblically why that is not the case, and that it's the Chicago Bears, and we are still having to try to convince each other. I'll just say that we beat you in the Super Bowl in 2007, so Lord's team, I think. Anyway, but it goes deeper than that, doesn't it, with perspective? This way of Jesus is actually a change of perspective for us, a learning that takes place. In Romans 8, Paul says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, this way of Jesus is actually a changing that takes place in us. 
that we get to become like him. It's not just about an eternal destiny of a place we go, but it's about who we actually become. And so there's a perspective that's needed in all of us, and we're going to see that today in this passage, a perspective change that's needed to take place in all of us, a learning, a becoming that's meant to be. Um, my wife and I have been married for like 20 years now, and almost half that time we've had people live with us in our home and community, sometimes multiple people at a time, and, and that's been a journey, and it's been young people sometimes, young people who wanted to just kind of do some crazy stuff for the Lord, and we wanted to be those type of young people too, and so they would live with us, and we would try to go for it together. Some of it was them coming out of difficult backgrounds, especially because they wanted to do something radical for Jesus, and their family was on a different page, and uh, other times it was people who had lost their home and didn't have anywhere to live or coming out of drug addictions. And I had this perspective that it was us doing all these wonderful things for them. We were <laughs> saving them in this situation and helping them through this situation. And I now can tell you that I'm convinced it was more about what God was saving us from that it was about who we were becoming and saving us from becoming uh, selfish and focused on what we wanted to do and how we wanted to spend our time and keeping our lives nice and tidy. So there's a perspective change that's been needed in us. We're going to see some perspective changes in the story, not just from those who are far off, but actually even those that are closest to Jesus actually needing some perspective change and needing to grow into something. All right, so if you're with me in John 4, uh, let's read starting at verse 1. We're not going to read actually this whole story, uh, so you have homework to go home and finish that up today, all right? Uh, but John chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who was baptized who baptized, but his disciples. I love that, actually, real quick. Find somebody who's going to actually put you out there. Jesus himself uh, is, is getting his, grabbing his disciples and helping them get their feet wet. He's actually saying, you do it. You baptize. Um, and that's amazing. Find some people that will push you like that. But anyway, uh, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? And drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe, in, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will, we will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could Grubhub have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Guys, this story is so good. It's so deep. It's so rich. There's so many wonderful things that it's almost hard to share out of it because we can't talk through it all. So honestly, go back, look through this, keep reading this, because I promise there is so much in here about who Jesus is and the way he wants to relate and how he's calling us up and what a kingdom life looks like that we're not going to be able to touch. And I feel like we're going to do this just injustice because we're only going to touch on a few things. But guys, this passage is rich. So keep diving into it. Um, yeah. So anyways, we're going to touch on a couple things, but it's not going to be the fullness of everything. Um, you know, the good news of the kingdom isn't that I get saved and one day get to go to heaven. That's not the good news. Part of the good news is that I am called and saved into this one family, that God is making one family again that reigns and rules on his behalf. God is looking for partners that are remaking the world with him. That is the good news. And from the beginning, he's been after this one family. That's what Adam and Eve were, one family who were meant to reign and rule, to partner with him, to make this world beautiful. And it didn't go so well. 
And so then Noah came along and, and, and God was like working through Noah's family and that didn't go well. And then, and then God brought Abraham along and so on and so on. And in the family of Abraham is where we see Jesus. Because all along, Abraham's family, which ended up being the nation of Israel, they were called to bless and be a blessing to the world that all families might become one under God again. Because we know in the garden that was fractured and that was broken and God has been trying to remake it through himself. And so he's not making a bunch of families that fill the earth, but God is making one family, one family that fills this earth. And so it's this idea of reconciliation, this bringing all of this back into oneness, but it's a family that belongs in a new way together where all barriers have been erased. And this is part of what Jesus is doing in the story with this woman. Rich Velotis says this, at the core of racism is the lie that some people are superior or inferior to others. I would say that that's at the core of every ism. Politicism, genderism, sexism, nationalism, all of this, there's this idea that there are some that are superior and there are some that are inferior. And so we're going to look at some of the languages of barriers in this passage, this fracturing of, of the, the opposite ideal of what God's after. God's after one family. But in this passage, we see all these barriers that are in place. And so look at verse 7 through 9 with me for a minute. I'm on the wrong page. All right, so it says, you know, Jesus comes to her and he asks this woman, he says, hey, will you give me a drink? And she answers, um, okay, well, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And my little footnote in my Bible there, it says, or do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Do you hear the language of barriers in there? We have, you're a man, I'm a woman. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. If you use this, you're going to be unclean. Don't You can't use this dish that I'm using. And we kind of get that a little bit because back in the 50s and 60s, you know, we had these separate water fountains for the black community. So we, under, like, we, we can picture that in our heads, and we know inherently that that's insidious that that is in no way, shape, or form what the kingdom of God looks like. And so it's this language of separation that we see, these barriers that are in here. And if we look at even verse 12, you know, she, she says, hey, Jacob made this well. Are you greater than Jacob? Like, are you better than him? Again, this language of separation. In verse 20, she goes in to say in this woman, she said, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so it sets up this dialogue of, of like, you know, where do we worship? And, and, you know, the Jews do this, but the Samaritans do this. And so there's, there's these barriers that are in place that she's beginning to point out and pick up on. But Jesus is calling her back into something greater. He says that word yet in verse 23. I thought it was 25. Yet a time is coming, and he's lifting her gaze back up 
to a better and bigger picture of this unity together. But then the disciples come back from their journey and they're like, um, yep, it says that they're surprised to find him talking with this woman. The message actually translates it that they were shocked that he was talking to this kind of woman. This is a picture of prejudice and it has absolutely no place in the kingdom of God. There is no room for it. Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, he goes on and on. He talks about there being no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, male or female. The barriers and the separations are gone. Because he tells the Corinthians, he says, hey, don't you dare judge look or regard anyone from a worldly point of view because in Christ, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. So we have to have a different perspective. And then Paul hammers it home in Ephesians 2. See, in the temple back in the first century, there was these different courtyards and the Holy of Holies was the place where you met with Jesus. And there were kind of all these layers to get there. And out at the very, very furthest layer away was the court of the Gentiles. And right in the next layer in was like the court for the women. So they were like the furthest away possible. But that, that courtyard, there was a wall there called the dividing wall of hostility. And look what Paul says in Ephesians. He says this. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one. Remember, he's remaking a family. And he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in, in himself, in Christ, one new man out of the two thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The warning here, Paul says, is don't you dare build up what Jesus has torn down. He came in, and that, that dividing wall of hostility, where it separated, and those barriers, Paul says, don't you dare build up barriers that Jesus on the cross has torn down. It's no longer an us versus them. It can't be because on the cross, Jesus demolished that. And so we see in the, the Samaritan woman, it's almost this prophetic picture of what this new family of God looks like. The Samaritan who was the, as Leah was calling it this week when we were together, the mudblood. The Samaritans who are the half-breeds, the not good enoughs. They are part of the family of God. A woman who was embroiled in shame, now brought in to the family of God. This is what heaven likes. Those who are outside, those who are not the insiders, brought back into the family of God, not as separate families, but as one family together. And guys, reconciliation is hard work. Jesus broke down those walls and he broke down the barriers, but guess what? It's still easy for us to stay far apart. Even if the walls aren't there, 
It takes hard work to draw close to one another. Jesus is our unity. He's what holds us together. See, the, the disciples, the Jewish people, they, they held on to this prejudice that was centuries long. Century-long conflicts were still coloring their view of how they saw this people group. That is prejudice. That is racism. See, Jesus is coming to break down all the barriers of the isms. He's breaking down politicism, nationalism, genderism. The things I said earlier, I like to think I don't have any isms. But I gotta be really honest, one of my barriers right now, one of the walls I find myself putting back up is through politics. I, the other day I had, well, yeah, it's been a little while, but I had to get off Facebook because I would open up my Facebook account and I would start scrolling and reading and I would be reading like all these posts and these political things and I could see my heart becoming hard once again, and it was like literally not good for my soul. And I began to build these walls back up where, well, how could they think that? Why would they post that? And little by little, I was creating a wall brick by brick because it was me versus them, us versus them. And so I had to, I had to remove myself from it because how dare I build back up a wall that Jesus has torn down. And so I had to kind of step away because it was shaping the way I saw people, which then was forming the way I was living. And so my eyes were on something else instead of Jesus. You guys might be too young to be on Facebook like older people like Ken and Rob and my wife, but what is your perspective? Are we allowing God to capture our hearts and give us a vision for the family that he's planned and purposed from the very beginning? Do we, do we see others and think, man, it'd be amazing to be drawn close in a family with him. I don't think the woman at the well, or Jesus' disciples had that picture immediately when they thought of one another. But Jesus did. And so can I encourage us to let God adjust our perspective, to let him have our vision for what that family is to look like and what relationship that goes across those divisions is to be. Uh, one of the ways that we've had to even work through this is that to start to think differently about places and people and times, and that actually they aren't God-forsaken like we often think they are. Uh, the, the Samaritans had some difficulties. They had made some bad decisions as well. It wasn't just like, oh, those are the people that aren't from the same bloodline as us. Uh, they actually had done some things that weren't great. When Israel, if, if those of you who might know this history, I'm sorry, I'll just give it a quick, but when Israel, um, the kingdom of Israel after Solomon was divided into two, the north and the south, um, the northern kingdom set up its own places of worship. 
Bethel and Dan, and it wasn't just that they actually worshiped Yahweh there. There was idols put on those places so that control could be had, and everybody wouldn't just go down and worship Yahweh at Jerusalem. So they had actually set up high places of worship other than Jerusalem, where God was with his people at the temple, and they had compromised. They had forsaken the word of the Lord and, and forsaken the law and done things that were not good, right? And not just that, but they had intermarried with the Assyrians when Assyria took over. And, um, and that was not to be for the Lord's people because it would lead them astray and cause them to worship other gods, which it did. And even when Israel came back, um, from exile in Babylon, you know, they were the ones actually giving them a hard time while they're trying to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Uh, so it wasn't like it was just this neutral thing. They had forsaken God and his word and his ways and over and over. And even, you know, only considered the first five books of the Old Testament to be God's word and the rest of the prophets they didn't accept. And so there was some issues, right? There was some problems, but just because they had forsaken God, God had not forsaken them. And we see through Jesus, him drawing close and actually wanting to draw them into this family of his. So one of the things we've talked about is, is to be careful that <laughs> when we say things or think things are maybe God forsaken places, people and times, it may not be what they seem. Are you with me? It's almost as if we sometimes think John 3.15 says, and because the world loved God, therefore God so loved the world and gave his son. But that's not what John 3.15 says, is it? It's not out of just us turning and getting things right. And we see this here as Jesus draws close to those that have forsaken him. Um, we've had many of I don't know, moments where God's wanted to draw us into what he's like in our life in this way. Um, when we moved to a little town an hour north of here, um, we started to do after-school programs with at-risk kids, um, which meant that, you know, people's lives were a mess. Uh, sexual abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse was just through the roof in almost every situation uh, that we were working into. Um, one of the young guys that I met initially was a, uh, uh, a guy named Tyler. And uh, he was one of the smartest guys I had ever met. Uh, I learned an awful lot from Tyler. Uh, try discipling someone that's actually a lot smarter than you and uh, learns quicker than you do. It's quite a humbling experience. Uh, but Tyler's house was an absolute wreck. Um, his father was in prison almost the entire time that I knew him. Um, he had some stints where he was out and tried to live, and that didn't go so well. Uh, his mother uh, was addicted to painkillers because of some health issues she had had. She really wasn't functioning most of the time. And even as a result, Tyler, at a very young age, was just left neighbors, people like that would stop by and just give food. So he grew up in this type of a house. So when I met Tyler, it was get him out. 
And uh, he was at our house constantly. I learned how to play video games, not very well, but with Tyler. And he, was, he would hang out at our house. He would eat at our house. We'd give him jobs to do. And it wasn't just us, but it was the church community that we were part of. Taught Tyler how to drive and use a mower for the first time and some of those just basic things. But in our opinion, you know, you look and it was rescuing him from this, in one sense, God-forsaken place. But guess what? We found out. God was still actually at work, even in his home. Uh, Tyler's stepdad um, began to interact with me over some time as they had marriage problems. <clears throat> his stepdad had become an alcoholic, or actually was an alcoholic for, for years as well. And uh, one of the situations, really, we were trying to rescue Tyler out of. And, um, but God was at work in his life and Bob's life, and drawing him to himself. And it was through this friendship that began with Bob. Uh, we actually ended up, he ended up being one of our renters. He ended up being a close friend. Um, and the ups and downs of coming out of alcoholism, uh, that we actually started to get a vision for what God was after all this time. We were like slow learners. I think it took, honestly, years before we even caught on. That actually, you know what? God's actually restoring this relationship with Bob and Tyler, and actually wanting to store the relationships with Bob and his other kids. We got to become a part of this journey of these walls coming down, of these hurts and these difficulties that have built up over years and decades of being worked through and being changed. And Bob became a friend. We got to pray with Bob and for Bob, and I loved watching Bob leave our church carry-ins because it was like it took several of us, all the plates, as people from our community loved on Bob as he was part of our family, the same people who had for long thought it was a God-forsaken place at home. But surely, in one sense, God couldn't have been active as we were trying to rescue Tyler from this place. And instead, we realized, actually, God was there, working and moving. And we got to be part of this wonderful thing of seeing walls come down and healing take place in the midst of this relationship. Can I encourage us to, be, to let God work on our perspective, to change our perspective and give us a vision for his family that actually draws in people that we think there's no way overcome situations and boundaries that we don't think can be overcome. Yeah, it's a barrier. And that was a barrier that we had erected that Jesus had come to tear down. So let's not build walls. Don't build back up what Jesus has torn down as he's remaking and reshaping his family, often with the people that we don't expect and doing things way more in me that I could ever ask or imagine. And the other thing we'll just look at really quickly um, is just this idea of living water. When we see this woman here, um, I love the way that the Bible Project put it. They said that there is a drought in all of our souls, and it's called sin. Sin came in, and it created this, this desert in our soul where we are 
constantly searching for control or to create more security in order to quench something on our own terms. And that's the idea of sin, that we believe that we can quench something on our own terms. But what really quenches our thirst? What is it? And I think it's often in our points of desperation that that's where Jesus comes in. And I think that's what this story illustrates so beautifully in John 4. It was at this woman's greatest point of desperation, the desert in her soul, that Jesus comes in and says, I have living water for you. So let's look at it real quickly. Verse 10, he says, he tells her, hey, if you knew the gift of God, gift, a gift is free. If you knew this gift, he would have given you living water. And so he keeps drawing her in at this point. And in verse, you know, 13 through 15, he's like, hey, anybody who drinks this water over here is going to be thirsty. But if you drink what I give you, you're never going to thirst again. And it will become this spring of water that continues to well up into this eternal life. And so this woman says, sir, give me this water. Come and give me that so I won't get thirsty anymore and I don't have to come here and keep drawing water. Because here at this well was her place of shame. She was there by herself because she was an outcast in her village. No one wanted to be around her. She was a pariah. And so it was at that moment and at the greatest, again, acknowledgement of her shame that Jesus comes in. As he's drawing her in, he said, go call your husband and come back. And she's like, I have no husband. And Jesus comes in and he brings this challenge to her. He's already restoring dignity to her. He's already honoring her by talking with her, by receiving from her. He's inviting her into this. And now he comes and he says, but you're settling for something less than you were made to be and made to do. And he comes in and he says, at this point where you are searching for satisfaction by having five husbands, he said, uh-uh, that's not it. I have more for you. I have life for you. Did you hear what Ken read this morning in Isaiah 55? Actually, this is, this is loaded throughout scripture. God's favorite word is come. In Isaiah 55, he says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. It's there. Come to me. That is where your satisfaction is. And in John 7, just a few chapters later, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him or flow from his heart. Guys, we didn't get to finish the rest of the story with the Samaritan woman, but this is what happened. She came and she drank and the spirit began to bubble up and her life overflowed and she ran back to her village to tell everyone what had just happened. And in doing that, it said many were saved and believed. 
We see this picture of this water beginning to satisfy her soul. And it doesn't just satisfy her soul. It begins to water the ground around them. And many come to the well that was life. And so what are the unreliable sources of life that we've been trusting in? What are the unreliable waters, the mirage of something, or the salt water that I come and drink from that actually continues to leave me more thirsty? Last year we were in a meeting and Leah asked this question to some of us. She said, what is your level of commitment to comfort? And I was like, oh no, (laughs) I am in trouble. Because I began to realize that that was something I sought out all the time and got really, quite frankly, annoyed when someone came into my comfort bubble and began to burst it, like if I was watching the Colts or Purdue, and somebody came in and like started interrupting me. I got super annoyed, which is stupid and annoying, but like I could see things that were happening in my heart, and I hate conflict. I hate tension. And so in order to stay comfortable, I will avoid places of tension and conflict because comfort, I felt, was going to be more a source of life than working through other things. Where I'm looking to satisfy my soul, if I can just do this, if I can just have like an hour of like Netflix, then then I'll feel better but it ends up leaving me more thirsty. And so what are some of the unreliable sources of life that we're trusting in? Is it being good or being right? If only I can be good or right, then that will satisfy me. Is it being wanted or needed? Is it working hard, success, achieving? Is it having significance? Is it being unique and having this identity? Or is it being competent or capable? Are these sources of life that we're trusting in? Is it being secure or safe? Like, what what can I control? Is it being satisfied and content in, like, this being entertained, not feeling like I'm deprived or trapped? Is it being independent because I'm fearful of being controlled or being harmed? Or is it comfort and having peace? Guys, these are are not necessarily bad things. These are good things. Working hard, that's a good thing. Okay? Having significance, that's a good thing. But if I'm looking for that to quench my thirst, I've missed it. Because as the woman at the well learned, there's only one thing that will satisfy, and it's Jesus. And so where, as Jeremiah, he gets on the people of Israel, he said, you, I have two things against you guys. You have forsaken the spring of living water and you have dug your own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So what wells are we digging? Thinking that if I dig this, if I drink from this, I will be satisfied. My soul will be quenched. My thirst will no longer be quenched. Where is it? Because when we recognize that, we recognize that we've forsaken 
the free gift that was given to us in Jesus. I think the lie that we believe is that Jesus isn't enough or that he will literally quench my thirst. I think we need a bigger and better perspective of who Jesus is and the life that he draws us into. I believe the lie that he's not good enough or not enough. Can I encourage us that we need to have the perspective as well? That it's not something we need to just walk away or try to hide in shame. But it was good news for this woman that Jesus knew how she was trying to fill the wells she was trying to dig to bring life. Because he comes along and says, I see that. I'm going to give you real life, real satisfaction. So we can be honest. We should be honest. Jesus wants us to be honest with him. And that's part of our journey of saying, Lord, this is how I've tried to do it. And it's not working. I need you. I need your life. I need to drink deeply from you. Lord.